Well, it's a privilege for me to introduce to you uh, one of my all-time favorite people on this planet, and uh, he's my friend Scott Maxwell. Scott and I had the privilege of serving uh, together in student ministries uh, back at Grace Community Church in California uh, back in the, the early to mid-1990s, uh, and uh, we had a great time together, and uh, we both graduated from the Master's Seminary just a kind of year after one another, and um, the Lord took us in separate directions. He took uh, Scott to Arizona, it took us to Texas, and uh, we've been uh, serving separately for uh, almost uh, 20 years now, and um, just kind of bumping into each other from time to time and, and uh, coming in and out of each other's lives and ministries over the last 20 years. But this was a, a real blessing to be able to get caught up with Scott and, and just to be re- reminded of what a dear a man of God he is. Uh, he's just a, a, a very uh, godly man, a, a, a humble man, uh, a, a very uh, deep thinker, uh, an articulate communicator, and um, just a gifted Bible teacher, and, and you'll see that very quickly this morning, uh, that he's very clear, uh, he's very creative, uh, he's compelling, and most importantly, he's Christ-centered uh, in his exposition. And so uh, we're blessed uh, this morning to have Scott uh, here to bring the word to us, and so why don't we give him a warm lakeside welcome as he comes. Well, I want to introduce to you the Ken Ramey I knew 25 years ago. Um, It's the Ken Ramey you know, because he's the same man. Um, 25 years ago, Ken was a humble and, and teachable man, a godly man, and he was wise beyond his years then. He was fruitful in his preaching and in his discipleship in any life that he touched and in my life. And he was blessed immeasurably to have a wife who loved him and supported him uh, tirelessly. And what I praise God for is his sustaining grace in you guys over these last 25 years since we've kind of been apart from each other or so. And, um, and I know that Lakeside, I know you're blessed. But I just want you to know that when I talk with them, all they talk about is how they're blessed by you and that God has used you uh, to be the instrument through which his say, um, sustaining grace has come to them as a, as a man, as a pastor, as an elder, as a husband and wife together, and as a mom and dad and their family. So thanks for taking such good care of an old friend. Appreciate it. And it's a privilege to be with you. Let's take our Bibles and open them up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Life is full of really big questions, really hard questions. Why does evil exist? A tough question that's been asked in our church over the last summer by several families is, why did my mom have to die? Why did my dad have to die? There are tough questions in life. Why did I lose my job and now I have to move my family? Why did I miscarry? And the list goes on and on and on and on. People live a a lifetime facing questions like that. You and I do, and, and perhaps over the course of their lifetime, they never get the answers to some of those questions. 
But there's one question that rises above all of the other questions that come in life. And it's the question we're considering together today from Titus 2.14, that Titus 2.14 answers. It's the question, why did Jesus die? Now, I know you are a well-taught church, and I know that you love the Scriptures. And so if what we do this morning is, is review and we're just rehearsing truths to ourselves that we, we know the answers for, and um, well, praise God, that's good. And if we get a little bit more fuel for our worship of Jesus Christ, that's good too. And you know how important this question is, why did Jesus die? You, you know that it is in a league of questions above all the other questions. It's in the major league of questions, not in the minor leagues. This is a question that you must get the answer to before your life is over. You see, you can live a lifetime and then die without getting the answer to those other questions. People do that all the time. But you cannot die without getting the answer to this question, why did Jesus die? And that's what puts this question above all of the other questions. It's because of the eternal significance of this question in your own heart and soul. But you need to understand that you have to get more than the answer to this question. You must entrust your life to the answer to this question. You must get the answer and you must believe the answer with all of your heart, the answer to the question, why did Jesus die? So have you even considered the question ever before? Has it been a while since you've considered this question? Do you know the answer to this question? And even more importantly, have you cast everything you know of yourself on the answer to this question? Titus 2.14 has the answer to the question, why did Jesus die? I want to read verses 11 to 15 so you can see where it sits. Will you follow with me as I read Titus chapter 2, verse 11? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and instructing us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God has appeared, leading us to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. As Paul writes to Titus, the one who was leading the churches on the island of Crete, and so these words extend to elders and pastors in local churches. These things, verse 15, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority let no one disregard you concerning these things. In Titus 2.14, there are two answers to the important question, why did Jesus die? Number one, why did Jesus die? Jesus died to save us, verse 14. You can't skip over these very important words that are very familiar to you where it says, who gave himself? That's Christ Jesus. He gave himself. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the Jewish people killed Jesus. 
And it doesn't say that the religious leadership of the temple killed Jesus. And it doesn't even say that Pilate and the Romans killed Jesus. Now, it's true that all of those indeed did participate in the killing of Jesus, right? Let me just show you. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 for a minute. For a minute. Turn back there with me so you can see the, the different players who actually were involved in the killing of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. It's the last part of Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Look what he says. Peter says, therefore, let all the house of Israel, that's the Jews, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom y'all crucified. All the house of Israel, you all crucified him. Go to chapter 3, verse 13, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Peter's directing these words in verse 12 to the men of Israel. And he says in verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you, men of Israel, delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you, men of Israel, you disowned the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. The Jews indeed can be said to have killed Jesus. Go over to chapter 5, verse 27 of Acts. Peter and John are brought before the, the council of the of the religious, the religious leaders of the temple, and the high priest questioned them in verse 7, or 27, saying, verse 28 now, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase? <laughs> if only they could have his blood upon them. But Peter and the apostles answered, saying, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you, the council, whom you, the religious leadership of the temple, you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Go back to Luke chapter 18. Just so that we get this clear and understand, the people of Israel did participate in the killing of Jesus. The religious leadership of the temple did indeed participate in killing Jesus. Luke 18, verse 31, Jesus himself said that the Gentiles would kill him. Verse 31 of chapter 18 of Luke, then he took the 12 aside and he said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they, the Gentiles, have scourged him, they, the Gentiles, will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So indeed, it is true that all of those were the participants in the killing of Jesus. But Scripture never affirms that the ultimate cause for Jesus' death was the Jewish people. The scriptures never claim that the ultimate cause for Jesus' death were the religious leaders of the temple, neither was it Pilate nor the Romans. That simply is never affirmed as the ultimate cause for Jesus' death in the Bible. The ultimate cause behind the death of Jesus is Titus 2.14. He gave himself. He gave himself. The Word of God affirms this from the Old Testament all the way into and throughout the New Testament. 
The ultimate cause, the ultimate reason why Jesus died is due to the plan within the Godhead themselves. Turn back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 10. 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, we're told of Yahweh's plan to crush his suffering servant. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He's going to be a guilt offering. And in the same passage, we're told that this suffering servant would himself pour himself out to death. Look at verse 12. I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, the ultimate cause for the death of Jesus rests within the Godhead, between God the Father and God the Son. Now turn to John chapter 10. We'll finish this out in John chapter 10. Jesus himself affirmed that he was indeed in control of his life, and he was in control of his death, and he was even in control of his resurrection. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And verse 18 is the best one. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. So don't miss this obvious truth back in Titus chapter 2. You can turn back there now with me. Don't miss the obvious truth. Jesus gave himself in death. He was on a mission, he was under his father's command, and with authority from God, he laid down his own life at the cross, and with authority, he took it back up again three days later. And Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us, for us. This is the language of substitution, right? We who have believed we are the ones who should have died. That was the place we deserved to be, at the cross. Jesus did not deserve to be there suffering, the full wrath of God, but he gave himself for us in our place as a substitute so that we might be saved. The language Paul uses here for saving us in chapter 2, verse 14 is the language of redemption. He gave himself to redeem us. He gave himself at the cross for us to pay the price required to set us free. The idea in the word to redeem is, is to the releasing of a slave upon the receipt of a ransom payment. His death was the only currency God would accept to free us. No one else's death could function as a currency that God would trade in. 
Nobody else's blood, nobody else's effort, nobody else's work could set us free. His death, his shed blood was qualitatively also the only price required to ransom us out of our slavery to sin. And upon the payment of such a price, we no longer were the possession possession of whoever the former master was over us. But now we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus, the one who paid our ransom price. So obviously this word redeem only makes sense against the backdrop of slavery. Those who are already free, they have no need to be redeemed. They have no need for a ransom to be paid. But those who have been held captive under the will of somebody else, those who have been enslaved to the will and the power of another master, those are the ones in need of being redeemed, and that was the case for us who have believed. Listen, we did not add Jesus to an already pretty decent semi-freed life. That's not what it means to be a Christian. We didn't add Jesus to a semi-free life. We were slaves who belonged to a tyrant, and Jesus gave himself for us to liberate us to himself. Paul tells us what we were enslaved to, that we needed a ransom payment paid for to get us free. What is it? He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Sin is lawlessness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Lawlessness is rebellion against a lawgiver, the lawmaker. Lawlessness is the ultimate assertion of your own will over and above and against the one who made the law. That's God. It's done in defiance against him. It's done in defiance against his desires. Listen, when you drive like there are no laws for you, the police don't like it. And you say, yeah, but if they only knew the skill that I have in my 1972 Ford Pinto, they would know, they would understand I'm one with this vehicle. And I know the the turns and the curves of the road. It's not a blessing to authority when you act like there's no law for you. Let me turn it on you and put it into your own home. Can I do that? How do you feel when your kids in your home live like there are no laws for them? Lawlessness is rebelliously choosing your own will in defiance against his will, in complete disregard for his will, his wants, and his law. And that is what owned us. That's what owned us. That's what mastered me. That's what enslaved you. To be freed from that tyranny, that slavery, meant that a price had to be paid. A ransom had to be paid. And this is why Jesus gave himself as a substitute for us. 
The only currency, the only price that could sever or destroy the ownership of lawlessness over us was none other than Jesus shed blood at the cross. Then in securing that payment through his self-giving death, we became his. We became his because he tore in half the title of ownership that lawlessness had over us. Look how chapter 3 of Titus, verse 3, talks about our slavery there. For we also once were foolish ourselves. He's writing to believers. Hey, believers, we once also were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived right here, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And here's how bad our slavery was to lawlessness. Paul doesn't say that we were redeemed from some lawless deeds. What does he say? Look down. Every lawless deed. That's how bad it was. All of them. That means that lawlessness distributed its ownership title and its power over us as slaves down into every single expression of lawlessness that we could come up with. We were owned by, we were mastered by, we were dominated by every specific expression of that lawlessness. All of them. We weren't just the, sin of, uh, the slave of sin in general, but we were enslaved to the sin of bitterness. We were enslaved to the sin of anger. We were enslaved to the sin of lust. We were enslaved to the sin of drunkenness. We were enslaved to the sin of fornication. We were enslaved to the sin of laziness. We were enslaved to the sin of lying, of stealing, of gossip, of slander, etc. We were owned by countless slave masters of lawlessness. Every lawless deed. What a hopeless condition. So it would seem. Except that Jesus came into the slave market of lawlessness to purchase us out of its slavery over us. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to think with me for a moment. If that's what he did to set us free, here's, my, here's some questions for you. How many of those lawless deeds still have a legitimate title of ownership over you when you leave the market with Jesus? How many of those lawless deeds still have a legitimate claim of ownership upon you, believer? How many of those lawless deeds lie outside, just outside the reach of Jesus' ransom payment for you? Not even one. He gave himself for you to redeem you from every lawless deed. Not one lawless deed can find a valid title of ownership over you anymore. Why? Because you have been liberated by Jesus. You've been liberated through his death, through his shed blood in your place. 
So the most dreadful and hopeless ownership situation that you were in as an unbeliever has been entirely, completely, finally, and eternally paid in full. You are freed. You are saved. You are redeemed. Because when Jesus gave himself at the cross for you, he paid in full the ransom to every title of ownership that every lawless deed ever had over you. And this is the only way to be freed from sin as a broad category, and it is the only way to be freed from any and every specific sin that dominates you. It's the death of Jesus Christ in your place. And if you will trust in Christ's death alone, in your place, the promise in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you will be liberated to Jesus. You will be delivered to Jesus. You will be redeemed to Jesus. You will be saved to Jesus. This is the first purpose for which Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? He died to save us in the sense of liberating us from sin. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know you people very well, um, but I just want to ask, I don't know who might be here who today feels your bondage under your sin. Listen, I, I can tell you when I was 19, I felt the bondage that my sin had over me. I couldn't articulate it that way. I would have never articulated that way. I didn't understand that it, that was the case until somebody read the Bible to me and I heard the gospel. I knew something was not right in my life, but I, wouldn't have I would have never articulated it as slavery to sin. Listen, perhaps for you this morning, Scripture is defining your condition and your life today in ways you've never even considered before. Listen to God's Word. Listen to the Gospel. Don't sit as a peer next to God's Word. Don't sit above God's Word and judge it. Sit under it and let it speak to your life. You may have been trying to fix what you've felt is wrong in your life, and you're using your own methods, you're using your own remedies, but none of them are the currency that God works in. None of them has the power to sever you from the slave ownership that sin has over you. There's only one currency and there's only one price that God will accept to redeem you from every lawless deed in your life, and it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, His shed blood in your place. You need to know the answer to this question, but even more importantly, you need to cast your life on the answer to this question. Jesus died to save us. There's a second answer to this question. A lot of times we just kind of end there and we close our Bibles and we go home and we get a great answer. But there's more. There's a second answer to this question. Jesus died to save us, number one. And number two, Jesus died to sanctify us. Jesus died to sanctify us. By sanctify, I mean he, he died to set us apart for himself in holiness. And not only that, but he died to set us apart in holiness for himself so that we would per pursue a progressive pursuit of holiness with him. This is the second purpose for Jesus' death. Look at this in verse 14. He gave himself for us, dot, 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 halfway through the verse, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. 
So his death was the only currency and price that could redeem us, but his death, we find out, is also something like, get this, the only soap or the only detergent or the only bleach that could purify us, could cleanse us as the dirty, polluted, filthy, defiled slaves that we were. His death alone cleanses us from sinful defilement, from pollution. And and notice the double scrubbing over in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You know these verses are very familiar. He saved us. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but he saved us according to his mercy. Watch this. By the washing. See, we're dirty in his sight. By the washing of regeneration. Now figure this out. To get the cleansing that we need, God comes and he just says, I'm starting all over. I'm going to regenerate you. That must have been really dirty. That you wouldn't try to polish up that old man, that you wouldn't try to dust him off and scrub off and take a chisel to the calcified junk on his life. But he would just say, no, we're starting over. I'm going to cleanse you through regeneration and renewing That not just anybody would do. It's not a self-renewal. It is a Holy Spirit renewal. We are born again by the Spirit of God. That's a double scrubbing. That must have been dirty. He purified, notice this back in 2.14, he purified for himself, for his own interests. He did it simply because it pleased him. It interested him to take what was offensively defiled in his sight and to purify it for himself. Listen, he acted with his own interests in mind. And listen, you need to understand this about Jesus Christ and the Father and the the Spirit. When they act in their own interests, we all benefit. He is the, God is the only one that when he acts in his own selfless, holy benefit, we benefit. Listen, step into my home, and I can show you every time where I act in my own interests, nobody in my family is blessed. And the same is true for you. But God is not me, and God is not like us. God is God. And when he does something for himself, we benefit. Paul expands on that, on the ones purified for himself, for his interests. Look at verse 14. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Listen, this purification grabs you and grabs the guy next to you and grabs the family behind you when, when, they, when he, God saves them and he gathers us all up into a people. The church. God isn't interested in any Lone Ranger Christians. There's no such thing. This people is referred to here in the kindest, most endearing way possible. So he's acting for his own interest, but how he describes the benefit for us is so endearing. We are a people, verse 14, for his own possession. That means we are a people who are a unique people to him. We are a valued people to him. We are a treasured people. We are a special people or possession who uniquely belong to him. Now, let's get this straight. We were not treasures. 
when we were defiled, impure, corrupt slaves of countless lawless deeds in the slave market of sin. We were not treasures then, and we were not valuable then. We were not valuable gems in a store that could enrich Jesus if he only purchased us. How could we be that to a holy God as we were? That is not why Jesus Christ went to the cross in the slave market of sin to die for us so that he just might become the lucky guy who gets to own us. You know the parable of the, of the treasure buried in the field and the guy finds it? I think the church in America has taken that and turned it upside down. We talk as if we are the treasure buried in the field and Jesus comes and finds us and he has to go give away everything to get old lucky us. Listen, that's just the opposite. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the one that we should give up everything, that we must give up everything in order to gain. We are a unique people to him, valued by him. Just the opposite occurred, though. In order for us to become something of unique value to him, think what he had to accomplish. He had to destroy the ownership title of sin over us. He had to also purify us or cleanse us. And it cost him his life to do it. And there was something of a kind of a two-stage process of us becoming a treasured possession in his one death. He liberated us and he purified us. Liberating us put us under his title of ownership, but purifying us made us a unique, special treasure belonging to him. And his one death accomplished both of those. But notice this, every, do you notice that every word in Titus 2.14 counts? <laughs> notice this, to what end, to what end does his purification aim, aim for? Look at verse 14, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, this. To what end does his purification aim for? To put a new description over you, a new label over you, to put a new title over you as his unique treasured possession. What? What? Well, whatever the new description is, think with me, his substitutionary death achieved it, right? He gave himself for it, and he redeemed us for that label. He purified us for that label, and this is how we got that new description. Okay, what? What is the new label? What's the new title? What's the new description that corresponds to everything that Jesus Christ did in our behalf? Here it is, you ready? Here's the label, indifferent. That's not it, right? In, that, that word doesn't even make sense with what we've been talking about. Here's, here's the word, ignorant. Kind of falls flat, doesn't it? Here's the label. Negligent. That's not it. And certainly not 
resistant. You see, those kinds of titles and those kinds of labels, they don't fit at all with his substitutionary death in our place. They don't correspond to his liberating work in our lives. They they don't align with his cleansing work in our lives. But this new description does fit perfectly with all of that. Look down at your verse. He gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here it is. Zealous. That word fits, doesn't it? Zealous. The word zealous means active passions. Active passions. Active desire. As opposed to like dormant passions or hibernating passions. These are active zeals, active passions. But zealous for what? Well, the words that follow are an expansion on that new label, that new title, that new description over us as Jesus' unique treasured people. Zealous. Verse 14, for good deeds. That full description, that perfectly corresponds to, that perfectly aligns with, and that perfectly honors his death that purifies us. Now, just to to contrast this, I'm going to contrast it with some absurdity, if I might, for a moment. Imagine Jesus saying something completely absurd like this. I I gave myself in death for her, but she only turned out indifferent to good deeds. Or imagine this absolutely absurd statement. Jesus saying, I scrubbed that man in my death. And the most he can put forward is a negligent attitude toward good deeds. Listen, Jesus didn't die for us and he didn't purify us with his death so that we would be ignorant of good deeds and he didn't die and scrub us with his death so that we would be unaware of good deeds, indifferent to good deeds and he didn't do all of that so that we would be resistant to doing good deeds. What would that say about his death in our place? You know what it would say? Here's the truth. It would say his death isn't very effective. It's just not very effective. And how ridiculous would it be? How absurd would it be for one of his treasured, purified, unique possessions to say, well, I love that he died in my place. I love that. I, die. I love it that he purified me. But, but good deeds? I, I can take them or leave them. I mean, what's the big deal with this whole obedience thing? Or how absurd would it be in light of what Titus 2.14 says for somebody, a believer, to say, well, I love thinking about his death for me. Man, I love to preach the gospel to myself. I'm all about God's grace. But, but, but I can live without being eager for good works. I mean, after all, isn't being eager to do good works, isn't that called legalism? No, it's called Titus 2.14. Is it not? That's the new description, that's the new label, that's the new title over your life if you are in Christ. Let me confirm this with a couple of other sections here in in Titus. See the way the grace of God does the exact same thing. Go back to what we read earlier, verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. 
Okay, here's the grace of God that has come and come on the scene through Jesus Christ and, and him crucified when he came. The grace of God has appeared to do what? Number one, verse 11, bringing salvation, right? The grace of God came to save us. But look at verse 12. The grace of God has appeared what? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's sanctification. The process of becoming more and more and more holy all the time. So Jesus died to save us. Jesus died to sanctify us. The grace has appeared. The grace of God has appeared to save us and to sanctify us. How about Colossians 3, verse 5? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, that, there's our salvation. Now watch, inseparably from that, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, what he's going to say. Listen, do you think verses 5 to 7 are a trustworthy statement about salvation? As a trustworthy statement, right? Do you think verses 5 to 7 um, should be uh, accepted fully? I, I think they should be. Um, but he is saying in verse 8 that this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Do you like to speak confidently about what verses 5 to 7 say? I do. Can you speak as confidently about this in verse 8? I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, those are the ones who are saved, so that those who have believed God will be careful to what? To engage in good deeds. There's zeal for good works. These things are good and profitable for men. So our affections, our desires, our intentions, our zeals, in life have been so liberated from sin and so purified from their former defilement that they are brand new affections, they're brand new zeals, they're brand new desires. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away and behold, new things have come. What are the old things that have passed away? Slavery to every lawless deed, total and complete defilement of life and hatred for what pleases God. That is passed away and gone. What are the new things that have come? Freed to belong to Jesus. A new categorical d definition of purity for our lives and zeal for what pleases God. You see, a new principle is thriving in us. It's growing in us. It's advancing in us. It's flourishing in us. What is this new principle? It is zeal to do good works. And this is what God is after in us through his son's death. He was pleased to crush his son in our place. Jesus was pleased to lay down his life with authority at the cross in order to purify us that we might be his treasured possession with this title over our lives, zealous for good deeds. That is what God is after in you and in me when he saves us. And you know what that shows to the world? when we become zealous as purified treasures in God's family, you know what that shows the world? It shows that his death was effective. His death was effective. Can I ask you this question? It's a good question to ask yourself every day, maybe when you wake up 
or maybe when you're going to bed and you're reevaluating your day as you drift off to sleep. What was my attitude today towards zealousness for good deeds? Would zealousness capture my attitude towards good deeds today? That's pretty convicting, isn't it? But it's what the death of Jesus accomplished in my life and in yours, if indeed we are in Christ. And it would be helpful to point this out as we close here. By the way, Ken told me that uh, I get to preach for two hours. Is that right? He didn't tell me that. That's a lie, and I need to put off that lie. Sorry. Applying from camp, though. That's good. In salvation, Jesus knows where to put good deeds in your life, and he knows where not to put good deeds in your life. And you can trust the Savior. You can trust the one who saves you to be accurate with where his exhortation to good deeds in life can be found. You can trust him. He will not misdirect you about where good deeds should be in your life. Jesus, listen, did not walk into the slave market of sin where you were a slave to every lawless deed, fold his arms and demand saying, now, show me some zeal for good works and I'll consider liberating you. I'm waiting. He didn't do that. That's Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of good deeds that we did in righteousness. But once his death liberated you to be his, once his death purified you to be a treasured possession, once you step outside of the slave market of sin and you belong to Jesus and you've been raised to walk up in newness of life with your Savior, then he puts zeal for good works before you. He does. So in the slave market of sin, no zeal for good works, no good works at all. You are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Upon being liberated by, uh, from your sin by Jesus Christ and you step out in the new life with him in front of you, he says, now let's get to work. He died to save us. And he died to sanctify us. So where are you right now? You know, there are only two places to be in the entire universe. You are either in the slave market of sin, ruled by every single one of your lawless deeds against God, or you are outside the slave market with Jesus, freed, purified, belonging to him, and zealous for good deeds. Where are you? Which man are you? Which woman are you? Which boy or girl are you today? So why did Jesus die? Jesus died to save sinners, and Jesus died to sanctify sinners, to believers, sanctify believers. And now you have the answer to the most important question, but remember, you can't just know the answer. Do you believe it? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, what else could we think of and set our minds on today that would be better than this, your death in our place? God, all we can say is thank you, and what we can say in response to you is now that we, we love you, 
that we need you to live this life of zealousness for good deeds. Lord, we still see so much indwelling sin remaining in our lives and it, it, it can become discouraging. Would you help us to set our eyes upon the, your son's death that we might gain fuel and strength to see what he did for us, to set us free and to cleanse us so that we might live a new life. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet given their life to Jesus Christ. Would you grant them what you have granted to all of us who are saved, Father? Grant them your grace that they might believe you, that they might cast all that they know of themselves on all that they know of you. You are a good Savior, one full of love for sinners. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.